I invite you to take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 2 Peter, chapter 1, as we begin a new series in uh, this short but powerful book, 2 Peter, chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 1 and 2 of the first chapter this evening. Hear God's word. Peter writes, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you and the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Salutations. That was the word that Wilbur the pig in E.B. White's classic Charlotte's Web heard as he lay down for a morning nap. Salu what? He asked. Salutations. You remember this scene? And that thin voice came back when he asked, what are salutations? And she, Charlotte, responded, when I say salutations, it's just my fancy way of greeting you, of saying hello, of saying good morning. Well, this evening, we have salutations, not from a spider, uh, but from the Apostle Peter, uh, greeting those who read his letter with a rich description of himself, of us as readers, and of the gospel of God and the Christian life. Tonight, we are introducing this uh, new sermon series, this uh, second epistle of Peter. And I want us to, to look at Peter's salutations uh, as we seek to give an overview of the letter as a whole. Uh, I want you to have a sense of where we're going uh, during the summer on Sunday evening. So uh, looking at these few verses, these two verses, and, and then also thinking about the letter as a whole, I want you to see that this letter is at least three things. First, this letter is the final testimony of a mature apostle. Second, this letter is a reminder of the whole truth of the gospel. And third, this letter is a warning against those who would turn us away from the gospel. Let's think about those three things this evening. First, this letter is the final testimony of a mature apostle. Like other first century letters, uh, Peter begins by identifying himself in verse 1. Simeon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now we know that Peter is writing in the mid to late 60s AD, toward the end of his life. Church history uh, tells us that Peter was executed in Rome under Nero around 67 or 68 AD. And you notice in chapter 1 verse 14 that Peter writes, I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. So Peter knows that he is about to die, or he is about to be killed, to be executed. Uh, and so 2 Peter, this letter, is his final farewell address. It's his legacy to the churches, in particular, uh, probably the, the same churches in Asia Minor to which he had written 1 Peter, the churches of Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. Now, of course, that's assuming uh, that when you read in chapter 3, verse 1, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved, uh, that he's writing to the same group of people. We're not exactly sure if that is the case. The text is not 100% clear on that point. But what is clear is that Peter is writing in the sobriety and the reflectiveness of his maturity. Not merely a chronological maturity, but a spiritual maturity. Peter knows who he is by the grace of God. He knows his calling by the grace of God. 
And we see that in the way that he speaks of himself here in verse 1. First, in his name, and second, in his titles. First, his name, Simeon Peter. Simeon, a Hebraic form of the more familiar Simon. And Peter, the Greek form of the Aramaic Cephas. Both Peter and Cephas in both languages uh, mean stone or, or rock. And with this double title, Simeon Peter, uh, Peter is recalling that momentous occasion uh, in Matthew 16 when he confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus graciously and powerfully gives Simon, Simeon, a new name, Peter, to show him the foundational rock, stone-like role that he would play in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, of establishing that church. Peter and his confession are the, the, the foundation on which the church is built. But when you read the Gospels, what do you see but that Peter had to grow up into that new name, didn't he? Uh, Peter, the impetuous Peter, the impulsive Peter, uh, the often sticking his foot into his mouth Peter, right? The, the talk first and think later Peter, right? Soon after getting Jesus's person right there in Matthew 16, what do we read uh, but that Peter failed to understand Jesus's work? He rebukes Jesus when Jesus says that he is about to die and be uh, you know, persecuted and, 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 and rejected by the Jewish leaders and crucified. And he rebukes Jesus. No, Lord, this will not be. The Lord forbid. And what does Jesus call him? But Satan, another new name. Unfortunately, a temporary name, right? With Peter's intensity came arrogance. Like the time when he declared that even if everyone else fell away, I, Lord, will not, I will never fall away. Peter was one of those people who didn't have to uh, worry with, with confidence issues, right? Uh, but with that arrogance often came uh, this, this, or with that confidence often came a lack of humility. Uh, and so we see in the life of Peter through his denials of Jesus in particular and through his subsequent restoration by Jesus, Simon Peter experienced the ongoing transformation of the grace of God. And we see that transformation throughout the, the first half of the book of Acts, don't we? Uh, as Peter comes to realize that he is that foundational apostle to the Gentiles, that, that he is the one who has been saved by grace through faith. And so when it comes to, to Acts chapter 15 and they're wondering, do we need to make these Gentiles be circumcised or not? And Peter's the one who stands up and says, look, we know that we have been saved by grace alone. We have been saved and cleansed and washed through faith in Jesus alone. Surely Peter would have remembered the words of the angel to the women at the empty tomb, go and tell his disciples and Peter. Right. He knew he was a sinner saved by grace, and therefore he knew that God could save anyone, even Gentiles, by grace through faith. And so here is Peter, the mature, spiritually mature man who has learned the gospel for himself, who has experienced the grace of God, even in his name, Simeon Peter. 
But we also see that transforming work of God in Peter at the end of his life as he writes these two letters. Because notice, secondly in verse 1, the, the, the titles that Peter uses of himself. Notice how his, his confidence is now so beautifully wed with a humility. He is a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter knows himself to be a slave of Christ, his master. He's not the one in charge. He's not the one who can tell Jesus what to do, not the one who can rebuke Jesus. No, he is now the one who will be told what to do. He is the one who will be sent to serve and to speak with the authority of the risen king. You notice at the end of the letter, in chapter 3, uh, at the very end almost, he is able to, to, to speak of, of Paul, to, to humbly acknowledge that Paul, the very same Paul who had opposed him publicly to his face and, and had rebuked him right, for, for refusing to eat and drink with the Gentiles, being a hypocrite with regard to the gospel, he's able to acknowledge that this same Paul is an apostle and his words are on par with all the other scriptures, even though, yes, he does write some things that are hard to understand. Right? And there's even the humility of Peter expressed in that statement there in chapter 3, verse 16. And yet at the same time, with this humility is a confidence. Peter knows and acknowledges that he too is an apostle. He too is the one who speaks this spirit-produced word of God. As you see in chapter 1, verse 21, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter knew that he himself as an apostle was carried along by the Holy Spirit. He too spoke the commandments of God, as he mentions in chapter 3, verse 2. He too has the authority of an eyewitness, as he'll tell us at the end of chapter 1, one who has seen the majesty of the transfigured Lord Jesus Christ, who has heard the voice of God the Father on the holy mountain. Peter, confidently yet humbly, transformed by the gospel of grace, spiritually mature, comes now with this last letter, this final letter. Peter transformed, is fulfilling God's purposes for his life all the way to the end. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter right before Peter told uh, Jesus that he would go to prison with him, he would die with him, right? Before he, before he actually denied Jesus, Peter says to him in Luke's, Jesus says to Peter in Luke's gospel, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Jesus says, that your faith may not fall. And then he says this, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. That's what Peter is doing in this letter. Peter is strengthening his brothers. His faith, his faith had not failed because Jesus had indeed prayed for him. He had turned in repentant humility. And now here in this letter, he is confidently strengthening the brethren. Which brings us to the second point. This letter is not merely the, the, the final letter of a, of a mature apostle. It is a reminder of the whole truth of the gospel. There are twice, two times here in this letter, Peter tells us why he's writing. He is writing to remind his readers of things that he already knows. Look at chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. He says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. Right? He says, I know I'm going to die, verse 14. And he says, I will make every effort 
so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. And then if you flip over to chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, you hear a similar note. He says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. You see, Peter is seeking to strengthen the churches, to strengthen the brethren as Jesus had exhorted him there before his denials. And he's seeking to do that by reminding them of truth that they already know so that they will remember that truth even after Peter is dead and gone. Uh, the older we get, uh, the more we need reminders, don't we? Right? We, we forget things. We, our, our finite minds, our fallen minds tend to forget. And whether it's for you writing notes to yourselves, whether it's setting reminders on your phone or telling Siri to remind you something when you get home or, or taking a, a physical object, something you absolutely can't forget the very next day and putting it right by the door or right by your keys, whatever it might be, right? we need reminders. But we need spiritual reminders too, don't we? We are so prone to forget the truth that we already know. We're so prone to forget the truth, the whole truth of the gospel. And so even here in his salutation, after telling his readers who he is, Peter reminds us who we are and what the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ is. You see it there in the rest of verse 1. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And there's so much here, isn't there, about the gospel. First, Peter is reminding us that we are those who have obtained the gift of faith by grace. That verb obtain doesn't carry with it the, the connotation, the sense of obtaining by effort and willpower and resources, but rather the, the sense of receiving by the casting of lots. The, the verb that's used here is the same verb used in, in Luke chapter 1, verse 9, where Zechariah is chosen by Lot to enter into the temple to offer sacrifice, to burn incense to the Lord. The, the emphasis here of this verb obtained is on the sovereign providence of God determining the unfolding of, of history, and particularly determining the, the gift of faith. Who will receive the gift of faith who will obtain that gift? It is according to the sovereign providence of God. The fact that you have faith, if you have faith this evening, its source has nothing to do with you, but solely to God. If you believe in Jesus tonight, grace is the source of your faith, and God gets all the glory. And Peter wants to remind his readers they have obtained, by God's sovereignty, this gift of faith. But second, Peter reminds us that the faith that we have is of equal standing with the apostles' faith. Right? It's of like quality. It's of like kind, like value. It is an apostolic faith. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of Christ. There is no caste system in the kingdom of Christ. If we are believers, truly, genuinely, sincerely believers, we share the same gospel advantages as the apostles, Peter is saying. The same gospel privileges, the same spiritual blessings that are in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. Faith is a gift of grace and it unites every believer to Jesus Christ so that we are righteous in him. We are adopted in him. We are sanctified in him. We are justified in him. 
this little phrase that you notice there in verse one, uh, obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Most commentaries would, would say that that phrase, by the righteousness, is, is referring to the impartiality and the justice of God and, and granting faith to all types of people, Jew and Gentile alike. And, and, and that could well be, but it, it seems to me that, that the, the little preposition by, which can also be translated in the way that it is there in verse 2, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, that, that, that this translation of, of, of by should be in because you notice that it, it, Peter's referring not merely to the righteousness of God, but of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ this beautiful declaration of the, of the deity of Jesus, but he's, he's speaking of the righteousness of Jesus. And so I think what Peter is saying there is that, that he's, he's referring to the, the grounds of our salvation, that, that, that faith consists in having the righteousness of Jesus. And we have that same faith. All of us who have believed have been justified. Right? We are all righteous in Christ. Every believer has graciously been given faith to believe in Jesus, who is God, who is the Savior, who is the Lord, who is the Christ, and believing in him unto salvation, this salvation which consists in righteousness that has been imputed to us through faith alone. We have peace with God, Paul has told us in Romans 5.1. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God in Jesus. God's righteousness, as we've seen in the book of Romans these last months, has been revealed from faith to faith, right? from faith from first to last. We believe in Jesus and we have the righteousness of God granted to us. And, and Peter is reminding of us, I think here, he's saying you have a faith in the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's your hope. And it's a hope that you already know. You already know this. But you need to know it again. You need to hear it again. The gospel. But it's, it's not merely the truth of justification that Peter is going to talk to us about here in this letter. You see, Peter wants, us to, he wants to remind us of the whole truth of the gospel, or the truth of the whole gospel, we might say. You see, through faith in Jesus, we've not only been justified, but we are also, we have been, and we are being sanctified. The indicative is the truck that pulls the trailer of the imperative, right? The indicative comes first. What God has done for us in Christ is always and inevitably followed by what we are called to do in response to what God has done. You've heard the phrases, we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It's always accompanied by good works. You can't have half of Jesus. You can't have Jesus as Savior without also having him also as your Lord. And here in this letter, you're going to hear that phrase a lot. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter is going to speak to us here in this letter that Jesus has not only saved us from the penalty of sin, but the, the power of sin, the practice of sin. He's going to remind us, as Paul does in Titus 2, that the grace of God has come teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live righteously and godly and, and self-controlled in this present age. 
Peter is going to remind us that the gospel has lines, it has, has boundaries, it has uh, uh, fences. And it says, this is the way in which you should walk. The gospel calls us and impels us to holiness, to effort, to the pursuit of godliness, to the way of truth, and to the way of righteousness. They always go together. You cannot have Jesus as, as Savior if you don't also have him as Lord. And so in the, the first part of chapter 1, you're going to hear uh, Peter call us to supplement, to supply our faith with all these qualities that he will list. And he's going to end the letter, if you turn to the end again, there in, in chapter 3, uh, verse 18, he's going to end the letter by calling us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The whole gospel, justification and sanctification, the whole grace of God that is at work, not just saving us, but saving us all the way, right? making us more like Christ. And, and the whole gospel, not, not only in the sense that Jesus has come, right, but that Jesus will come. And so Peter is going to end this letter with this beautiful meditation upon the return of Jesus. Paul, again, in Titus 2, told us that, that a chief part of, of the Christian life, right, is, is looking forward to the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, Peter believes the same thing, and he's going to tell us here that, that, that he's going to remind us that Jesus is coming again, and that that focus on his return should lead us to holiness even today. Now, I, I must be honest, as a pastor, I love the fact that Peter puts this emphasis upon reminder and repetition, even though you already know these things, right? Because uh, there are lots of times where I do feel like, I've already said this, right? But here's the thing. I know that some of you have never heard it before, right? Others of you have heard it a thousand times, but it's going to hit you and sink in, and it's going to feel like you've never heard it before. I've never heard that before. It's like, well, actually, you've heard that a thousand times, right? But some of you have heard it a thousand times. You know you've heard it a thousand times, but you still need it the thousand and one time. Because we need to be reminded of the truth of the gospel. We need that hammer to drive the nail even more firmly into our hearts. So that in our time of need, we might be able to recall, to bring to mind the truth that we believe. The truth that we know about how we are to live. We need to hear the truth over and over again. Fathers, mothers, what a, what a great lesson there is here in Peter's purpose for this letter as you seek to raise your children and you think, well, I know I've already told them this. Well, guess what? All right? You need to tell it to them again. You need to tell your grandchildren again. You need to tell your nieces and your nephews again and again and again. All right? They need to hear. Your, your offspring need to hear of who God is, of what he's done in Jesus Christ, of how he's called them to live. Go read Psalm 78 verses 1 to 8 and you'll see it again and again and again. We want to bring this truth and drive it home. Right? Because our children, just like us, are prone to forget, right? prone to wander, apt to, to, to lose out of our hearts and minds these glorious gospel truths and the call to holiness that is replete in this letter. We need to read those books that we've read back in the days of our college or in our, in our, in our youth or, or in our, our first uh, spiritual experiences. We need to listen to the sermons that meant so much to us when we heard them that first time. And we need to encourage one another, right? As long as it's called today, the author to Hebrews says, so that we won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of, of sin. If we're not growing, we are shrinking, 
If we are not progressing, we are moving backward. It's like paddling in a river, but you're paddling upstream. If you stop paddling, you don't stand still. You move backwards, right? And so we must continue to grow. We must continue to push forward. We must continue to press on. That's why Peter ends by saying, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ Grow in holiness. Grow in your knowledge of the gospel. Grow. This is a letter about the Christian life, about growth. Peter knows that we have sinful hearts. He knows that that we have a, a sinful world in which we inhabit. He knows that the forces of darkness are arrayed against us. And therefore, we constantly need to be reminded of the whole truth of the gospel. And Peter also knows that the forces of darkness sometimes aren't just out there, but they are in here. There are false teachers in the church, which brings us to the last thing I want you to see about this letter. This letter, lastly, is a warning against those who would turn us away from the gospel. You see, if the emphasis of 1 Peter is on trials from without, persecution and opposition and suffering brought upon by the world and the state, the emphasis of 2 Peter is on trials from within. The wolves in sheep clothing who seek to lead the sheep astray. Turn again to the end of the letter. Chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Peter here speaks of those who are ignorant and unstable, he says, who twist what Paul writes to their own destruction as they do to the other scriptures, he says. But then he, he writes this, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care, be on your guard. Watch that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. You see, it's in the context of false teachers who live unstable, erroneous, lawless lives, unrestrained by apostolic authority in doctrine or in life. It's in that context that Peter exhorts them in chapter 3, verse 18, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we don't know many specifics about who these false teachers were or what they were teaching. We, we don't have a lot to go with here in the, the chapter, but it is clear uh, that uh, they could care less about holiness or truth, right? They, they denied Jesus and his lordship over them. The whole second chapter is going to be a, a denunciation of these false teachers and of their way of living and, and, and a declaration that judgment will come upon them. But it's possible that even here in our salutation, uh, in verses 1 and 2, Peter is laying a foundation for this warning. Perhaps the false teachers were were challenging the status, the spiritual status of these young Christians. Maybe that's why Peter needs to say what he says there in verse 1. Perhaps in verse 2, the reason he adds the words, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, to the same greeting that we find in 1 Peter 1, 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, is because these false teachers were claiming to have a a superior knowledge of God. And yet, it was a false knowledge of God because all the while they lived immorally. And so throughout this letter, there is an emphasis that you'll see upon knowledge, true knowledge of God and of his Son, and upon a growth in knowledge as a way to combat the errors and the lawlessness, the sensuality that the false teachers were seeking to spread. And so as we go through the letter, we're going to hear Peter warn us, be on your guard, take care, watch, 
that you not fall into the same error, into the same lawlessness of these unprincipled teachers. And the same is true for us today, not just in Peter's day, but in our own day, right? Whether it's false teachers who would creep into the church and sexually abuse those who are under their care or, or dominate and abuse in a, a more broad way those who are under their care, right? whether it's those who claim that homosexual lust are really not that big of a deal, whether it's those who downplay the divinity of Jesus Christ, the authority of the scriptures, the vital importance of an alien righteousness that is imputed to us through faith alone, whether it's prosperity preachers who, who would say uh, to you that, that, look, it doesn't matter how poor you are, give us money, right? And all your needs will be met. And so they exploit the neediest of the flock. Whatever form of false teaching, whatever form of lawlessness we might see in the church, the answer is found, says Peter, in a, a true, in a deep knowledge of God through Christ by the Holy Spirit. It's not enough to know about God. We must know him personally, intimately, relationally. We must possess a genuine faith from a changed heart that seeks to, to live out in daily practice, in our daily life, in ever-increasing manner, says Peter, the way of righteousness based upon the way of truth. This faith, as he'll tell us in chapter one, must be diligent to make our calling and our election sure. We must have a knowledge that is fruitful, that is effective for the glory of God and the good of those around us. And so Peter here is going to challenge us because he knows that there are false teachers who are seeking to, to woo us, to seduce us. He's going to say, grow, grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied you in the knowledge, the true knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, his son. Many of you have probably heard or watched or read uh, Randy Pausch in his last lecture uh, given in 2007 at Carnegie Mellon University. If you know the story, you remember that he was a computer science professor uh, who learned that he had pancreatic cancer in September of 2006. And uh, in August of 2007, he was told that he had three to six months left to live. And so that Next month in September of 2007, he gave a lecture that you can find on YouTube, The Last Lecture, Really Achieving Your Childhood Dreams. Now, I've not watched the whole lecture. I've not read the whole book, but I've seen enough of it to know that while it's filled with great stories, while it's filled with life lessons, it's moving, it's inspiring, uh, yet it is devoid of the gospel. It's earthbound. It's ultimately man-centered. It, it, it focuses much on karma this impersonal force. We see Peter is giving us a last lecture of sorts, a last letter. Peter is giving us his final words, and yet it is filled with gospel truth. It is God glorifying. It is Christ honoring. It is spirit exalting. It takes sin in a fallen world very seriously, and it applies the word of God and the gospel of Jesus to the struggles that we all face on a daily basis. And ultimately, it's not about karma. It's not about an impersonal force. It is about knowing God through his son, Jesus Christ, personally, and walking in the light of that knowledge more and more every day. I'm excited that we're going to get to study this book together. And my prayer will be, and I think the prayer of all who preach will be, that, that God would grant us, he would enable us to grow in the grace 
and the knowledge of the Lord and the Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we look to you in anticipation for what you will do, Lord, through this great book. Lord, thank you even for tonight what you have taught us. Lord, we thank you for the reminders of the gospel from this mature apostle who has learned, had learned the gospel so well himself. Lord, we thank you for the warnings. Would you help us to take care, to take heed, to be on guard, to be watchful. Lord, we long for your return, that the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwell without any shadow of doubt or turning, without any taint of sin at all. Lord, would you come quickly? But until you come, Lord, would you help us to continue to grow, to continue to press on. Lord, wherever we might be when we start growing, Lord, would you help us to move forward? Lord, we thank you that you are at work. You are the one who does this glorious work of sanctification. You are the one who is working in us to do and to will for your good pleasure. So Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here tonight that you would bring them back week after week this summer. Lord, that you would give them a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, a hunger and a thirst for change, for growth. Lord, for progressive sanctification. Lord, we pray that you would help us in every way to put sin to death, to live for Christ, to live for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.